Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Sarah Seidner, and this is CNN Tonight. There is big news this evening in the Trump classified documents legal battle, a win for the Justice Department. The DOJ was just granted permission by an appeals court to resume its work examining documents marked classified that were seized from Donald Trump's home last month. This emergency intervention lifts a trial judge's hold that blocked investigators' work while a special master stepped in. A lot more ahead on what that means for this case as it goes forward. There is also a major development in the January 6th committee's battle for testimony from someone who tried to help Donald Trump overturn the 2020 election, who is also the wife of a current Supreme Court justice. Meanwhile, the legal battles are piling up for the ex-president. New York's attorney general just ratcheted things up a bit today, filing a new civil lawsuit and noted what her office found could lead to criminal charges against Donald Trump. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. Letitia James filed a sweeping civil lawsuit, not just against Donald Trump, but three of his adult children and the Trump organization as a whole. James alleges they were all involved in a staggering, as she called it, fraud scheme lasting over a decade so the former president could enrich himself. They stand accused of lying to lenders, lying to insurance brokers, lying to tax officials and more. Manipulated the value of assets, falsifying business records, false financial statements, insurance fraud. Each statement was personally certified as accurate by Mr. Trump. The pattern of fraud and deception that was used by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization for their own financial benefit is astounding. And it is all in stark violation of the law. James claims there are possible violations of state and federal laws, but her office lacks authority to file criminal charges. So she referred her findings to the federal prosecutors in Manhattan and the IRS. What she's seeking is in this particular suit, the civil suit, is to pay Trump or have Donald Trump pay a $250 million judgment, a ban on the Trumps running any New York businesses for good and to ban Donald Trump and the Trump Organization from buying commercial real estate in New York for five years. Donald Trump has responded by lashing out at James personally and professionally, saying in part in his new social media post, uh, he says, quote, another witch hunt by a what he calls racist attorney general and called Letitia James a fraud. A spokesperson for the Trump Organization added that it's all part of a political vendetta. The details of the case, however, are laid out in a 222-page filing. So to help us break down the specifics of Trump's alleged schemes, we have a team of CNN reporters outside some of the former president's most well-known buildings. 
Hi, Sarah. I'm Athena Jones outside Trump Tower in Midtown. The New York Attorney General claims Donald Trump not only inflated the value, but also the size of his own apartment in the building, claiming it was 30,000 square feet when it was less than 11,000. The lawsuit alleges that in 2015, that inflated the value of the property in this 30-year-old building to $327 million. At the time, no apartment in New York City, even brand new ones, had ever sold for even a third of that price. I'm Omar Jimenez at Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. It's one of the tallest buildings in the U.S. And just six months ago, the penthouse here reportedly sold for $20 million. But since it opened in 2009, the building's value has been left off of Trump Organization official statements. The AG points out that in Donald Trump's sworn testimony, he wanted it that way. He wanted to keep it off the books because to the IRS, the building was listed as worthless. Yet, less than three years after it opened, it was listed, the lawsuit says, as collateral in a $107 million loan. I'm Joe Johns at the old post office here in Washington, D.C., a building the Trump Organization never actually owned, but they did have a ground lease. A congressional investigation found this hotel lost $71 million in almost four years. And yet, the Letitia James lawsuit claims the $100 million profit Donald Trump received when he sold that lease in May was the result of lies made to secure the construction loan. And there are many more like that in the lawsuit. Here to dig deeper into the legal and political fallout is Nick Ackerman, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Alyssa Farah Griffin, former communications director for the Trump White House, and Russ Butner, investigative reporter at The New York Times. Russ, I want to start with you because this lawsuit, about three years in the making, uh, we have heard some of the details of it earlier on uh, when Letitia James was just looking at all of this. But you've been following Trump's personal finances even before we heard about all of this. What do you make of this very long, detailed 220-page filing? Well, I think it's a big problem for the Trump organization. And I think it really shows how they've taken businesses from what we saw in his tax returns that regularly lost money, that required constant infusion of cash, of cash and then pumped up the value of that, those businesses. Uh, and then all of that combined, the things they did were crazy, where they're, they're saying that rent control departments that an appraiser told them were worth $750,000, they value it $50 million. They say golf course memberships that they're giving away are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. All of that builds this gigantic mountain where they go to Deutsche Bank and say he's worth $2.5 billion. You should give him the lowest interest loan you possibly can and the highest amount of loan money that, you, that, 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 that they can possibly come up with. That's a, a massive fraud, and it's going to have great effects throughout the organization. And I think also it's going to go a lot of different ways that we can't see right now. There are property tax uh, frauds that are going on this. You could have property tax um, bodies across the country saying he defrauded us to get his taxes lowered. We're going to raise them. We're going to file for back taxes and penalties. And a prosecutor in those jurisdictions could say, this is a fraud on our county. We're going to file a criminal case on this. This could cause a lot of problems and, and, and go a lot of different directions. Not just about this. And one of the directions I think that Letitia James is talking about is the potential criminal case. Is there a criminal case here? And do you expect that there would be one that the SDNY, for example, might pick this up now? Well, that's a hard question to answer because the civil case, which is what has been filed today, the standard of proof is much lower than a criminal case where you have to prove 
guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Don't forget the DA's office has already looked at this and basically passed on it as a criminal case. So the question is, why did they do that? Now, the civil case has all kinds of other advantages. You've got very detailed allegations in here. And I can guarantee you that when Donald Trump went in for his deposition here and he was asked, I am sure, about every single allegation in there. And basically what he did is he took the Fifth Amendment, meaning that a truthful answer to the question asked would tend to incriminate him. So that gives the AG's office a huge advantage. They've got evidence that it happened, and then they've got Donald Trump taking the fifth on every single aspect of this. I mean, this ought to be a a slam-dunk case, but it's completely different once you take it into the criminal realm because you cannot use a person's assertion of the Fifth Amendment right against yes. them in a criminal case. But you can do so in a civil case, Yes, correct? in a civil case. But you still have to have some evidence of the underlying crime. You just can't ask somebody on the street, did you steal $5,000? I take the Fifth. That doesn't do it. You've got to have at least some evidence. But it appears from this complaint that they do have evidence on every single item that is listed in here. So by virtue of taking the Fifth, he is sunk. He is basically going to be stuck for $250 million. There's going to be a receiver that's going to be put in place over the Trump organization. Uh, Donald Trump is not going to be able to deal in any real estate deals again in New York. He is not going to be able to be on a corporation in New York. I mean, this basically undermines, one, the whole idea that he was such a smart businessman. Right. The billion dollar. The billion dollar man when he was actually the billion dollar crook. uh, And he's going to be, you know, in bankruptcy again. I mean, I just don't see any way out of it. Will this dismantle the Trump organization as a whole, you think? Oh, I think so. Although they are putting a receiver in place. They are putting um, a monitor in place. So I think they're assuming that it'll take they'll take over the assets. They'll take over the business. And it'll continue. But Donald Trump's not going to have any say in that. That sounds hugely damaging, hearing that from someone who has been at the SDNY and knows how things work. When you hear this, are you hearing anything from Trump world, if you will? Are they afraid? Is this causing consternation? Is this or is this just going to be used as a political pawn, political ploy? This is objectively a terrible day for Donald Trump. Um, and keep in mind, we're talking about one specific, one of the many investigations right. that he's under right now. We've got the ongoing January 6th. We have the Department of Justice looking at the classified documents. We have an old sexual assault allegation that's now being re-upped. He is, it's, his, his, his actions are closing in on all sides at this point. And I think that his reaction kind of shows us how he feels. When he feels cornered, he tends to be extremely aggressive. He used this bizarre slander against Tish James, calling her racist. I'm not even sure what he was tying that to. But he's he's feeling boxed in. I do think, we'll get into the politics of it more, it is likely going to make him more likely to announce his presidency. If he's facing bankruptcy in this civil suit, I think he's going to look for every lever to hold on to power. You know, there is another added thing to this. It isn't just Donald Trump that is being uh, named here. It is three of his adult children, 
Does this hit different because they are named now? It's not just him. It's them. It's, uh, you know, several other people that are involved in Trump organization. Is he taking this differently? I, I think I think he must be. And that was my experience when I did work for him is stuff that implicated the family and closer to home was something that he personally felt more attacked by. So I think that's kind of why we're seeing such a strong response from him. I'm curious, Russ, because you've done so much reporting on the the details, and it's difficult to get all of this information and then put it out to the public so that we can consume it and ingest it. Does it match some of your reporting? Does what you're hearing from Letitia James in this filing, does it does it jive with what you've seen? Oh, completely. There are cases where she takes things, you know, we were looking at the actual uh, financial records as it was filed on tax documents. She doesn't say that those numbers were incorrect. It's just how he transitions businesses that are losing an incredible amount of money that he's pumping money into from his, his inherited fortune, from his entertainment fortune to make them look like they're successful. And then he alters the bottom line. He alters the equation by which you compute valuation to make them look like they're even more that they're really worth something, right? In some cases, they're not worth what he paid for them, and he's lost money on every dime he's invested in the thing. So yes, that matches very much what we saw. It's just you see the impact on the other side of it, where he can use that lie to go and get more money than he would ever really get otherwise, and at a much lower interest rate than he would ever get, which meant he had a greater chance of being able to pay the thing back. So the regular average person would not be able to pull this off. No, it's as if, you know, my in-laws have assets, right? But in some cases, like, he has an investment in Vornado. It's a pass. He can't do anything with that money. But he claims that their cash is his cash. He claims that the value, the entire value of the building is a, a nurse to him, but it does not. And he can't even get a distribution from that investment unless Vornado decides that he's entitled to it. But yet, he acts like that's all his and under his control. And, and, and again, uses that as a building block to to build this massive valuation that in itself is just a mountain of fraud. And can I just say, there's parallels to how he governed toward the end to, to these actions. I mean, he tried to defraud the American public in the election. He thought he was going to get away with false electors, with trying to overturn the Democratic election, disenfranchising more than 80 million voters. This kind of tracks as a character trait of his and how he conducts his business. Oh, it goes back even further to Soho Trump. I mean, his children were involved in that. They were going to be indicted, but for the fact they were able to get into the district attorney's office and basically compromise the district attorney on this thing. So long I mean, history that New York there is a long history. To. If you've been in New York, you've been there. You know what that history is. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Russ Butner. I appreciate you coming on and giving us your insight. And Nick and Alyssa, you two are going to stick around uh, more on these new developments in the Trump classified documents probe, what it means for the criminal case pressing forward. More now on that new win for the Justice Department tonight. A federal appeals court has restored the DOJ's access to classified documents that were seized from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last month. It comes after a trial judge blocked investigators from viewing the documents. The three-panel judge, uh, judge panel, excuse me, which consists of two Trump appointees, sided with the DOJ on this point, saying, quote, it is self-evident that the public has a strong interest in ensuring that the storage of the classified records did not result in exceptionally grave damage to the national security, asserting that necessarily involves reviewing the documents, determining who had access to them and when, and deciding which, if any, sources 
or methods are compromised. The ruling by this appeals court means Trump's only recourse at this point is the Supreme Court. Back with me now are Alyssa Farah Griffin and Nick Ackerman. I also want to welcome Steve Bullock, former Democratic governor and attorney general of Montana, to our conversation. I am going to start with you, uh, I think, Nick. Um, You know, if this ends up going to the Supreme Court... I mean, do you, do you it think won't. it will? First of all, do you think it will? No, I no, don't think not so. Not a chance. No, I think this is so basic. Donald Trump has no proprietary interest in classified documents. There is no way he ever has the right to get this information or see it. I mean, that's really the underlying basis of this whole opinion. These are classified documents. And, and the court comes right out and says, based on the affidavit that was submitted saying that both the criminal investigation and the civil matter looking or the intelligence investigation, looking at whether or not anything had been compromised, were so intertwined that the courts don't get involved in second guessing that kind of information. I want to get into this, what Trump's lawyers have been saying, because they've raised sort of vague questions about whether the materials are actually classified or have been declassified. Um, and the court basically called this team out. And I want to read what the court said. They said that the plaintiff suggests that he may have declassified these documents when he was president, but the record contains no evidence that any of these records were declassified. That is pretty strong language. What do you make of this? What does someone do with something like this? What does this tell us about this case? Well, look, as governor, when I would get classified briefings, it'd come in a pouch. I'd have to give it back afterwards and you'd move forward. And you look at this, even Deary, the special master, had said at the end of the day, like, look, you can't just declassify on your own. And they'd still remain these documents. So to me, it's basically been Trump just throwing anything up on delays. And we actually, like, on the one hand, this 11th Circuit decision, it's almost a nothing burger. Like, it should have been expected. And what a circuit court does is it corrects errors. You're going to have a lot fewer errors if you're not appointing, like, 40-year-old district court judges that just based on politics and have zero experience in the law. And that's what we saw here. Alyssa, you know, the Trump group and Trump himself wanted this judge. Uh, They then, you know, figured, I don't know what they thought the appeals court was going to do, but they certainly wanted Judge Deary. Were they surprised, do you think? I think they were because they were spiking the football when the initial stay was in place. But this is, you know, to the governor's point, I've worked with classified documents when I was at the Pentagon, when I was at the White House. You don't just wave your hand over them and say they're declassified. You have to alert the intelligence community, the Defense Department, other entities. It was an absurd notion from the get-go. He didn't have a leg to stand on. And and now that's all coming home to roost. I want to turn to some reporting um, from our Jamie Gangel. She has a source that says that the January 6th committee has uh, made an agreement with Jenny Thomas, Virginia Thomas, who is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, And, you know, we're starting to talk about, okay, are they going to go to the Supreme Court about this? Um, Can you give me a sense from your perspective um, of how badly this looks for the Supreme Court when you have all of this evidence of Jenny Thomas sending text messages and trying to get not one but two states, the politicians in two states, to overturn the 2020 election. Well, listen, it's a time when I think the court is already seen as so hyper-partisan. The timing kind of couldn't be worse for this to happen. Now, listen, a spouse is is separate right. from who they're married to and her positions are. But this is a woman who is working directly with the White House chief of staff, organizing around January 6th, and frankly, 
spreading out their conspiracy theories that are so far outside of the mainstream. Um, I think that her testimony is going to be very, very enlightening. I hope that there's a there's a high degree of cooperation because sometimes with these things they they're cooperating, but you know, in, in theory, not in practice. So there's a lot to be learned there. I think on the actual plans leading up to the six, the different outside groups that were helping organize around it. She's very tied in the conservative movement. She oversees a group called Groundswell that has you know chapters all over the country. So I think she could shed some light on how they helped get so many people there. Steve, they already have this evidence. We've seen some of it. They 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 have the the text messages to uh, you know Trump's chief of staff at the time. Um, do when you look at this and you look at Justice Thomas being the sole dissenter on having Trump be able to send over documents to the January 6th committee, does this really hurt the Supreme Court in the end? Are you worried about what this says about the the sanctity, if you will, of the Supreme Court itself? Look, as someone that's actually got to argue in front of the Supreme Court when I was state attorney general, you wanted to walk into that building truly believing that it's above politics. Is it? But what we have here is this is conspiracy wide open, out in the wide open, you know, from the perspective of at the end of the day, look, assuming it's a it's a scandal, assuming that we actually believe that this is not about politics and about just the rule of law. But I think we've seen more and more with this court and all of the sort of gyrations in appointing this court that this independent branch of government. It's hard for even lawyers to have faith in, let alone the populace. I want to ask you, Nick, about your thoughts about what this does to the judicial system in general and the way people think about it. Oh, I think it it reflects badly on the court. There's no question about it. I mean, it makes you wonder, you know, how are decisions really made? I mean, as you pointed out, Clarence Thomas was the one dissenting vote on that decision relating to the documents that went to the January 6th committee. Um, he was the only one. I mean, he should never have voted on that decision. You think he should have recused himself? He should have recused himself, absolutely. Um, and particularly in light of all the facts that we know now, for certain. But none of this helps. You take that into account with Roe versus Way, where they basically ignored precedent for 50 years. Um, people put on the court just because of their position on Roe versus Wade. Nothing else. I mean, that was the litmus test, obviously, um, for Trump in terms of who he appointed to the court. Um, all of that adds up to a situation where it's really eroded the confidence, the public confidence in the court, which is absolutely a shame. One of the three ba- branches of government that we expect to sort of balance That's right. Out. I mean, the way we're selecting judges and the way it's being done now, I find is an absolute outrage. They wind up, whichever party it is, they pick the youngest person they can who's going to die the last so that they can stay on there forever. Um, and they look for people with very specific views. You don't see an Earl Warren or an Abe Fortas or uh, a Goldberg on there anymore. I mean, they're not picking the best and the brightest out of the legal profession. I thank you all for that really rousing. There were so many things to talk about. We could go on for hours. Nick Ackerman, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. Please stick with us because just ahead, President Biden tears into Vladimir Putin on the world stage hours after the Russian leader dangled nuclear threats as his country loses ground in Ukraine. The new front in what may feel like a new Cold War when CNN Tonight returns. Developing tonight, over 1,000 people have been detained in anti-war protests across Russia. 
That's after President Vladimir Putin announced he is mobilizing additional forces to Ukraine and hinted that he would consider using nuclear weapons in the conflict. Ukrainian President Zelensky, responding in a video address before the UN tonight, demanded that Russia be punished for crimes against his country. That comes after President Biden today warned Putin against further escalation. Mr. President, this war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should not, that should make your blood run cold. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Joining me now, CNN political commentator Essie Cup, Steve Bullock, is back with us. And we're also joined by former Republican congressman and South Carolina governor Mark Sanford. All right, I'm going to start with you, Governor. Um, senior officials telling CNN tonight that they don't currently see any signs of a heightened nuclear threat coming from Russia, but... Putin's comments are alarming to anyone, not just Americans, not just Ukrainians, people in Russia as well, people in the entire region. How concerned should we all be about this escalating war of words at this point? Because there is a war still going on. Sure. Yeah. And and Sarah, I think we should be, as both the president and most Americans are, rightfully concerned about what Russia is doing in Ukraine, period, full stop. Now, if you look at and clearly Putin's getting you know, desperate. If you look at what he said, it was like basically on a defensive posture. If someone takes over our land, then we'll start using nuclear weapons. So I think, look, you know, calling up 300,000 reservists, that's more than the 200,000 total that they've had in Ukraine. He's grasping at straws and it used to not impact the whole country. This actually will. Yeah. And that's why I think you're seeing some of these protests as well, because soldiers, Russian soldiers, are dying while they are killing Ukrainians, both civilians and uh, and people fighting. Um, I'm curious, Essie, what you made of President Biden's address. I mean, it was some fiery stuff yeah. from him. It was great. It was really strong. It was also in front of a totally meaningless audience. Um, the UN Security Council has Russia as a permanent member. Right. Um, Unga, I think, has proven to be pretty feckless during this and many other Um, wars. So he said all the right things, but he could have given it in like the White House cafeteria, um, sadly. And, uh, you know, this isn't S.E. Cup's opinion. President Zelensky, months ago and four months, has been begging the U.N. to actually do something, in his words, more than have a conversation. He said back in April, if you're just going to have a conversation, you might as well dissolve. So um, it was great, but I I don't know to to what effect. Mark, what do you make of that? Do you think that that's true, that he's talking to an audience, really, that can't do anything, and so it's action, not words? I mean, to her point, yeah, the audience was irrelevant, but the message was not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so the fact that he was clear and definitive about America's stand with Ukraine, I think, has has consequence. I would also say this. I I don't think Putin's to be dismissed on this one. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the history of despots over time, Mm -hmm. they become more and more, you know, sort of insular in their own little world. Tell me who's going to speak truth to power with Putin in, in regards to the world that he lives in. So he's living in a strange little world. He thought, based on the intel that he got, he, they could quickly take the Ukraine. was not the case 
I don't think it's to be dismissed, one, based on the world he's living in. And secondly, if you watch Russian television over the last six months, they have consistently on the nightly news talked about the notion of nuclear or tactical war. I mean, it, it is... It's more real, I think, than people would surmise. You know, like, what worries me is, I, for years, I hear from, you know, NATSEC, foreign policy, Russia experts, these people would say, Putin is evil, but he's not crazy. And they would say that as a way to allay nuclear fears. Those same people I talk to now say, he might just be crazy. <laughs> that is alarming, because these are people who were trying to tamp down the panic and paranoia, are now saying he might be desperate enough right. and crazy, um, not all there, and in a, in a box, mm. that we should take this pretty seriously. Have you been sort of hearing that same sort of sentiment? Because I've heard it as well, having been in Ukraine, that, you know, oh, he's not possibly going to do that. And then he did it. He did the very thing people thought he wouldn't go that far and invade, and he did it. So now that he's making these veiled threats about nuclear... Sure. War. I mean, it would affect them, too. It doesn't just stay in one place. No. Yeah. And his circles become smaller and smaller. But, but I think one of the things where we say, does that speech matter? It matters in part because if you look when President Biden walked in, like America first became America alone. What he did in advance of even invasion of Ukraine, when you have 141 countries universally condemning now what Russia is doing, he spoke from a position of leadership not just in our country, but in our world. Is America diminished, though, when it comes to, I'll ask this to you, Essie, and then you can also respond. Yeah. Are we diminished on the international stage because of some of the things that have happened over the past several years? I think we've taken a hit. I don't think we are diminished. And I think people, especially our allies, are so eager for us to regain our footing mm -hmm. and care about foreign policy in a way that's not just about America's needs, what we can take. Um, and so I think there's... Um, a thirst for it. I know that Biden, with all of his foreign policy experience, wants to deliver it. But it's going to take some time for us to regain the trust of our allies and for us to regain our footing after such a tumultuous couple of years. All right. Yeah, I would also say, though, you know, the times make men and women uh, on the leadership front. And I think that given the threat that exists with Russia, that didn't exist as clear and present as it does now, that there is, A, a thirst, to, to Essie's mm -hmm. point, for American leadership, but also I, I think it's going to allow us a chance to shine based on the threat that is real and does exist and is coming at us. Mm. All right, everyone stick around with me just ahead. Uh, this is something that will lift spirits a little bit, but there's also a downside. We are going to be talking uh, with some uh, about some issues with the lottery. We are also going to be talking with a lawyer who is standing up for the migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard. The attorney is working with the migrants, and she has a lot to say about what they are going through. Millions of people are desperately risking their lives to get into this country. That reality too often is lost in the U.S. politics of immigration. And for many, this is what that desperation looks like. This is video from a 2015 case of human smuggling. And now a video from 2017. Ten people died in the back of that truck. We saw a similar scene in June. Fifty-three people died in San Antonio. 
a different president was in office for each of those cases. This goes beyond the politics of the moment and why even the head of Customs and Border Protection said this is about the Republican governor sending migrants to cities run by Democrats. I think lying to vulnerable people for whatever the purpose might be can just never be the right thing. I am joined now by Rachel Self, an immigration attorney who has been helping many of the migrants sent to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, They are asylum seekers. Um, Can you give me some sense of how the families are and what they're still dealing with at this point? So they're doing pretty well at this point. Um, As everybody is aware, they were dropped unceremoniously without any preparation on the island of Martha's Vineyard. So this wasn't like a bus to New York City or Washington, D.C. There was was nowhere to get off. And they weren't even aware of where they were going until they were mid-air. And they weren't familiar with what Martha's Vineyard was. And uh, the endpoint was not a large city with a lot of resources or infrastructure to be able to provide for them. So immediately when we learned that they had arrived on the island, we sprang into action, Martha's Vineyard Community Services, all of the local police and agencies to get them into shelter. And then we worked very hard to get them into a more permanent solution to be able to attend to all of their needs. So they're now at the Joint Base Cape Cod being very, very well provided for by several pro bono allies and lawyers who were volunteering their time and um, getting medical services because several of them had pretty significant medical issues when they arrived um, and being taken care of by MEMA and everybody in Massachusetts, the whole community has rallied around them to try to help them because they truly were victims in this. As in, And even though it is obvious that it was designed as a political stunt, um, this isn't a political story. It's really just black and white letter of a law that a crime was committed here against these people. There is uh, someone in Texas, one of the sheriffs there, looking into potential uh, an investigation into potential criminal actions. Um, but I first want to talk to you about some of the things that we've been hearing from the politicians who were involved in doing this. First up, Governor DeSantis claiming that everyone volunteered to go, that they agreed to go to Martha's Vineyard. Um, Why wouldn't they go somewhere nice like Martha's Vineyard is sort of what he said. Let's listen in. The state of Florida, it was volunteer, offered transport to sanctuary jurisdictions. They were provided um, an ability to be in the, the most posh sanctuary jurisdiction maybe in the world. How do you respond to that? The most posh Uh, sanctuary jurisdiction maybe in the world. I I just think it evidences just how incredibly out of touch he is with reality. Um, You know, year-rounders on Martha's Vineyard, yes, there is a lot of wealth on Martha's Vineyard, summer homes for very wealthy people, but the year-round people of Martha's Vineyard are hardworking. There are many people that have to go to the food bank for their food. Um, It is the reality that he sees is not the reality, and really how I feel when I hear him speak about this is the same way that I feel when I watch a middle school bully picking on vulnerable kids in the schoolyard, Uh, and and to be laughing at this. You know, these are, these are human beings, and um, the people on our island and the community feel very differently than he does. And this was either designed to be confusing, demoralizing, frightening, or, or maybe worse, it was designed without even thinking about them as people as, at all, without any consequence 
to what this was going to do to them and just an interest in getting some sort of political capital or political gain. And uh, it just really is stomach turning. I want to go to another point real quickly that the governor has been making is that everyone signed consent forms. And in his estimation, well, they signed the consent form. So it's all okay. Here's what he had to say. They all signed consent forms to go. And then the vendor that that is doing this for Florida provided them with a packet that had a map of Martha's Vineyard. So, again, you hear this sort of softening of things, although we have heard from migrants there saying they didn't really know exactly what was going on. What do you what do you make of that? These were vulnerable people in a very precarious position. And I think that the consent form isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. Uh, Saying something doesn't make it so. If I slapped a label on a pound of butter calling it fat free, it wouldn't make it fat free. Snake oil doesn't make your hair grow back and you have to look at the contents. You know, it doesn't you don't even need to speak Spanish and English to look at the consent form that he says people voluntarily, knowingly and intelligently signed uh, to to know. You just have to count the words to realize it wasn't even all translated into Spanish. And everybody has a basic idea. We all who live on in this world have a basic understanding and idea of what consent means. If you say to me, may I have a bite of your sandwich? And I consent to that. And then you eat my entire sandwich. That is very different from what I consented to. In this particular instance, um, you know, considering all the castles in the sky that these migrants were sold before they were induced by fraud to get on that plane, even if they, you know, the free housing, the work authorization, mm-hmm. the English classes, the school for the kids. They got if, none of that. If, if, they, no, I, and nothing was waiting for them. Yeah. And they were and then they were, you know, I mean, it just it's, it's absolutely outrageous to say that they knew that they were doing. And, and you also can't consent to be a victim. You can't consent to perpetrate a crime. You can't have a contract to agree to a com- criminal act. You know, it's all just completely absurd. And I'd I'd um, I'd put it up there about uh, at the same level of um, authority as, as the maps. <laughs> Okay, Rachel Self, thank you so much. And we should also make the point that these were asylum seekers legally in the country trying to seek asylum and trying to go through that process. We'll be right back. We'd like to leave you tonight with something that isn't death, destruction, and politics. So we're going here. Imagine winning over a billion dollars. How long could you keep it a secret from your family? Or would you? From your friends? Your I'm not going to say annoying boss, but that too. Uh, How about for eight weeks? That's about how long it's been since the drawing of the third largest jackpot in history. Today, the winners have finally claimed their prize, but they're choosing to remain anonymous. All we know is that there are two people who bought the winning ticket at a gas station in Illinois and hit the big payday, opting for the lump sum payout of more than $780 million. That's over $390 million each. All right. Let's just go down this imaginary road because I know none of you have the ticket or you wouldn't be here tonight, I'm assuming. But would you would you would you quit your job? Would you just say, like, I'm out in a second? You'd never see me again. Um, Well, yes, yes. I I would tell no one, maybe not even my husband. Um, I would quit my job. Okay, I would take the lump sum. (laughs) Well, I mean, I would I would tell no one (laughs) because you get into trouble when that happens. No, I tell my husband. Okay, fine. But I would I would take the lump sum. 
Huh? I would quit my job. And honestly, I would have the most fun giving it away. I think that would be, yeah. I mean, who hasn't fantasized about who you could help and what you could do with that much money. So that would be, that would be fun. But you would never see me again. I'm sorry, Sarah. Okay. I would stay, <laughs> just FYI, with a smile on my face because I, I knew that I could walk away whenever I wanted. I'm just, I need something to do. I, I enjoy my I hear you. thing. But I, I get what you're saying. You're not a big fan of the lottery, I hear. The whole idea of it. I, I'm not. Uh, what I, do you it, have against helping I, I, education? No, no, it's fun. It's fun. It's exciting. I'm happy for the dream. Yeah. We all I want hope. I get it. But if you look at the numbers, I mean, you're 300 times more likely to be struck by lightning tonight than to win the lottery. And and so, you know, I got a great friend, Lonnie Randolph, who was head of the NAACP back in South Carolina when I was governor. He fought so hard against the lottery in South Carolina because his point was, we all want hope, but this is giving false hope. And mm-hmm. so this is fun to celebrate, but it is not most people's experience. And you look on average, people are throwing about 200 bucks a year into the lottery nationwide, and it's a regressive tax. That's the bottom Debbie line. Downer. Well, I, know, I mean, I know. look, there is that point. To be fair, Mark, <laughs> that argument has been made in my family as well. Steve, um, they have chosen to remain anonymous. Is that a consensus that we would all, if, 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 if you could, if you play, allows you everywhere. Yes. So that's the right thing. I to think, do? first of all, and it does give like we sat around in our family saying, "What would we do if we won this?" Yeah. Um, Isn't that a little bit more of the joy of it that you can just sort of think of it? You don't have yeah, to. Yeah, the win. joy wouldn't it wouldn't suck to win yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Money would be dollars. joyful too. But, but but actually, in some ways, when you see this. Because you also hear so many tragic stories of people winning a lottery and, and their life broke. becoming yes. destroyed. Right. So right. bless Jeez, them, bless them for really giving it some thought yeah. and actually getting together yeah. with consultants or tax attorneys yeah. and others yeah. and saying, how do we go forward? So um, maybe if we play our cards right, whoever won can join us at this table. One of these okay, days. I'm going to say something controversial and my family's going to be annoyed, okay. but I like working for my money. I, I don't. I don't want to win it. I, I, not that much. Give me a couple million. I'll be okay. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 okay. I actually like working for money. No, so there you are. Joy is in the struggle. That's yeah, what it, gives it I meaning. I mean, true. just to have a lump sum, to Steve's point, yeah. has proven to be incredibly destructive with a lot of families that did win the lottery. Okay, I'm trying not to get fired here because yeah. I've gone over time. So Essie <laughs> Cup, Steve Bullock, and Mark Sanford, thanks for hanging with me. I will be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.